Welcome to the Jungle Brothers Podcast. I'm your host, Joey, and today, Paulie and I are joined by Sam Alderton-Johnson. I first met Sam when he came through to Jungle Brothers looking to get a bit stronger for jiu-jitsu. It didn't take long to find out that Sam has a deep personal backstory, which has shaped the work that he is now doing through his consultancy firm, Impact Policy. Sam grew up on the streets of Glebe and Redfern, both pretty raw inner-city suburbs of Sydney. As you'll hear, coming up, he had all of the odds stacked against him. Battling cancer and the forces of the streets, he managed to get himself through university where he earned a master's in criminology. His personal experience with the legal system and growing up as an Aboriginal man shaped his desire to make fundamental changes to our social and legal systems. In today's chat, we talk about trauma, racism, social justice, equality, and more. Pretty big topics, but extremely important, and I hope that listening to this, it can help to broaden your horizons or perspectives about how you view these most important fundamental issues that our society faces. If you find that this episode is of benefit, please do myself and Sam a favor and share the episode with a friend. We would really love this conversation to get out there more because we believe it's something that is not had quite enough. Please enjoy today's chat with Sam Alderton-Johnson. Sam Johnson, welcome to the show. Thanks for bro. Right, pleasure. I apologize for the, uh, we had to change this many times. Things come to those who wait, my friend. You're a busy guy, I'm a busy guy. <laughs> it was tough to get you in. You started a business this year. Yeah, that's it. Impact Policy. That's the one. Uh, started a podcast. That's it. Which I've been checking out by the same name, Impact Policy. Yep. Um, can you tell us what, what does Impact Policy do? Uh, so Impact Policy is a consulting firm. So we launched in December last year, coming off the back of lockdown. Um, and we work largely with sort of the government, public sector clients. Uh, we do a lot of work around community engagement, community development, research, policy, evaluation work. Um, we work closely with Aboriginal communities. That's our sort of, I guess, um, priority area that we focus on. But community development is a broad space. So we do a lot of stuff as well in the flexible learning area, um, education, justice, and all that sort of space as well. Yeah. And when you say that the the Aboriginal community is like the, the main focus, yeah. what, other, what other communities or what other populations do you also focus on? Uh, so we're doing a lot of stuff in the justice space. So in the justice space, um, you know, there's a heavy over-representation of Aboriginal young people in the justice system, heavy over-representation of Pacific Islander young people in the juvenile justice system. Um, so we get bought in from a, um, from a consultancy perspective in terms of trying to work with government to... Uh, at the moment, we're doing work around research and evaluation in terms of understanding why they can't engage and keep staff that are from those communities as well. Ah, okay. Um, so that's a big barrier that the justice system is experiencing. You know, we are really a massive overrepresentation of Pacifica young people and Aboriginal young people, but a really low percentage of staff working in those places as well. Um, and we know that it's really critical from a cultural perspective that we have strong mentors and leaders involved in that work. Um, but systemically, it's been a challenge for the justice system for a number of reasons to engage and retain um, mob from those communities. So we're doing a piece at the moment sort of looking at that. So we'll be talking with staff that are from those communities that work in those spaces, trying to engage staff that aren't there anymore, trying to understand what that journey was like for them. 
um, and different things like that. Um, we're doing some cool stuff in the education space. I'm a big advocate for flexible learning. So flexible learning, like other people might think of that as like alternative education. Um, and so basically uh, education and learning models where the mainstream school system just doesn't work for those young people. Um, so our focus for these programs that we're working on at the moment is for Aboriginal communities from a cultural perspective as well. Um, but it's not specific to Aboriginal communities. You know, the mainstream school system doesn't work for anyone, for everyone anyway. Um, and so we look at it from that lens of how do we think about education? How do we think about learning and development from a more, um, you know, community-centred, person-centred perspective, holistic perspective. Um, when we talk about it from a cultural perspective, we talk about um, centering, you know, culture, social and emotional well-being, community at the centre of um, a student's journey, you know, mm. um, as opposed to fitting into learning and mm. education frameworks in the Department of Education and, and stuff like that. Department of Education does an amazing job, but the reality is, you know, there's a lot of young people across our state and country where that system just doesn't work for them because they might be experiencing a complex range of things like, you know, mental health stuff in their families or in themselves, you know, issues at home, um, you know, dealing with trauma, intergenerational or, you know, personally experienced, you know, a, a, a range of issues that can be going on, you know, learning and development stuff where the school just doesn't have the resources to be able to cater for those needs and so those challenges start to come out through behavioural issues in the classroom and then those kids get disengaged, the cycle starts to spiral, you know. Um, so we do some exciting stuff in that space. And, yeah, impact policy, it's, it's an exciting time because for me I was a – I worked in the community as a social worker for over 10 years before I went into government. And I worked in government for about five, six years and got to really work on some, you know, really special projects – and I'm, I sort of feel like I've gone full circle now where I can come back to that community experience and really bring that to these you know, organisations and policy makers that are making decisions that directly impact, you know, our young people and our families and our communities and really bring that lens of the reality of, you know, the lived experience of young people and communities on the ground. So, yeah, it's exciting. I want to I get into like the the motive and, and what you're like for starting a, a business like that and what your experience has been and all those things. But what's like from where I'm sitting, when you like what you just talked about seems like such big projects, like such huge things to tackle. How do you go about launching a business that's going to like address some of these massive issues? Yeah, look, it's, um, you, you, you are right. It's, ma it's massive. Um, and I would say like, Another, another word for that is like it's, it's systemic, right? Like a lot of this sort of stuff is really shifting um, way things have traditionally been working or looking at how things have been working and how we can do it better or not so much better but how can we look at it from a different perspective and lens um, and, and things like that. So like the issues are huge um, and I think it, for us it's about recognising that the most critical thing that we can bring in is a a perspective and uh, evidence base that necessarily hasn't really been front and centre for a long time. Um, you know, there's this regional community in New South Wales called Walgett. It's like over 90% Aboriginal community. There's only one high school in that community and it's a they call it a connected community school in New South Wales. So this school gets like ridiculous amount of funding to service that community. And for years and 
sit like year on year they just struggle to engage kids in that school and um and so but the the for me i sent the the ba- biggest barrier there is that there's no other options for young people that can't attend those schools and so we come in from a perspective of you know yeah that's like that old albert einstein um, quote you know you keep doing the same thing over and over again mm. it's like the definition of insanity so we're trying to come in with fresh thinking from a cultural perspective as well and go like you know there's there's different ways we can look at this like and, you know from a cost benefit analysis too like you know there's 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 value in taking a leap at looking at how community can lead and be involved in making decisions about education for their community and young people that live in there so it is massive, but we just try and really focus on what we can control and just try and take it step by step. You know, where can we have the most massive impact? So at the moment, you know, with this sort of stuff, it's about um, being able to, you know, pull together the right evidence to inform the people that are making those decisions. And to do that, it's about like any sort of consultancy firm or business can do research and evidence. But for us, it's about like, we do that in a way where we're engaging directly with community and that they're key parts of developing that knowledge base. And so for us, if that's just, if that's the one thing we can focus on right now, then that can have the biggest impact because for such a long time, so many people in our communities haven't had a voice in development of policy. Um, any any sort of social policy, if you think about education, if you think about the criminal justice system, mental health, you know, alcohol and drug space it's all people making these policy decisions that are so far removed from the realities of what those communities are experiencing right so Mm. um for us we really try and honor you know we've got key principles about how we do our work um and all that sort of stuff we really feel like that's that's the critical ingredient for us but we recognize it's a massive job and it's we're playing the long game you know what i mean like from an aboriginal perspective our communities have been you know surviving um the impacts of 1788 for over 200 years and we're still living with the realities of the systemic impacts of that today and so we still we recognize that this is a long game if we're still living and you know working and studying within these systems and 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 worlds that it's not going to change overnight so we need to be part of the solution but it's going to take time and patience and hopefully that's where impact policy starts to play a key part could you like for for folks maybe who are not familiar with the idea of say uh, of of what you mean by systemic, and say you know and we we hear the term a lot systemic racism and and I think most of it, you know most people would have an impression but maybe for some it's not the, the idea is not crystal. From your perspective as an Aboriginal person, could you kind of just you know sort of give us a simple version of of how what that is? Yeah, hundred percent. Oh give you an example of it from a criminal justice perspective right so we're talking about systemic racism in the justice system um so aboriginal people in australia are the most overrepresented people per capita on the planet in prisons aboriginal women are the fastest growing prison population in the world but it starts um from as young as like when we come into the world so when we talk about the justice system so my degrees in criminology um, graduated social science honours in criminology. I uh, wrote my thesis on um, juvenile justice and policing. So all the research and evidence is there that um, young people, Aboriginal young people, come into contact with the criminal justice system many years younger than non-Aboriginal young people. Not because often that they're committing more crime, but often that those communities are over, we would say over-policed 
or that there's a high police presence and that so those communities become more prone to be coming into contact with the criminal justice system. So and coming into contact means you've had you've 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 come into contact with police. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, you might be um, you know, yeah, you've come into contact, you might have got caught shoplifting, you know, you might have got caught chucking rocks with your friends and you've broke a window or you know, whatever yeah. sort of petty sort of crime, but Aboriginal young people come into the contact with the criminal justice system at a younger age than non-Aboriginal Australia. Um, and then with that, so then that compounds, when you come into the criminal justice system at a younger age, it then compounds your ability to be diverted away from imprisonment. So when you're coming in earlier, you come in before the magistrate quicker um, and you have less options in terms of going into custody. So young people, Aboriginal young people, will then go into custody earlier. They're non-Aboriginal young people because they're coming into contact earlier with the criminal justice system. Um, I used to work in uh, the juvenile... Pri- there was a juvenile prison in Lincoln, um called Judaparina. And so often, more often than not, we've got young... And this is for all young people, but again, from that systemic racism perspective, more often than not, we've got young people and Aboriginal young people that are in prison for like victims, like crimes of poverty and, you know, social inequality. And I'll never forget one time I was working in, in the juvenile prison and this girl got picked up in Tweed for breaching her bail and she got brought down all the way from Tweed Heads to Sydney and she got brought down because she breached her bail because she stole a can of deodorant and a Mars bar from 7-Eleven and that's what she got. And she got brought down, she got sat in the prison for two weeks before she got released and went back home. You oh, know? God. Crazy, right? In a whole other city. Whole other city. You think about like you think about that from a justice social perspective. It's crazy. But even if you think about it, even if you don't really have a heart, you're just thinking about it from an economic perspective. It doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. Like, yeah, that's taxpayers' money we're paying to take a kid for stealing a candy bar and you know deodorant down. And these aren't um, random stories. We hear this all the time. But this was just one I saw with my own eyes when I was working there. Um, but yeah, so then you know, so young people are coming in the justice system. They're often imprisoned for crimes of poverty, you know, um, you know, not not severe crimes, um, and all that sort of stuff. And then, whilst they're in the system, there's little support around, um, you know, therapeutic intervention if there are things happening in their communities or if there are issues at home or anything like that. So then, systemically, we take kids out of their communities, we remove them from. Any, anything structured or good that's happening there then we put them back in community but what often happens is it becomes like a revolving door because kids are getting picked up for minor crimes they're not getting in prison for a long time but they're going to jail a lot so then these kids fall, so you hear about this cycle of crime so then kids are not going to school regularly they're not having seen counsellors or if they do need support because their life becomes segmented you know because they're coming mm. in and out of this sort of process um, and we'd see that all the time with young people you know coming in and out of the justice system and you look at it now with um, like deaths in custody in Australia is a massive campaign that's been going for a really long time and the biggest thing about Aboriginal deaths in custody is like almost all of these cases where Aboriginal people have died in prison they've been in there for um, for like I'm not going to say victimless crimes but like you know, for being drunk and or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting picked yeah. up for being drunk and disorderly. Like I talk yeah. about one of the most tragic cases. I was I was used to teach criminology at UNSW, and um, this lady Miss Do died in Western Australia, and she had, 
she was in a domestic violence relationship with her partner and she called the police to help her. The police come and she had outstanding warrants for unpaid fines because they used to still have that in WA where you could imprison people for unpaid fines. So she's called them in a DV situation to get help. They've come and then they've arrested her and then taken her. And then she, you know, and this other stuff happened in custody and she passed away like a couple of days later. But when we talk about the system, we talk about like there's there's the structural way of policing, courts, how all that sort of operates. Then there's that there's the whole like how policy is developed and implemented to disproportionately impact community disadvantaged communities, particularly Aboriginal communities that are more prone to that. Um, and yeah, that's sort of what we sort of see when we think about like systemic racism and systemic challenges and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, but it's massive, it's complex. Probably not something I could, you know, answer shortly, but it's a deep dive, you know. I, it's important though because um, there's... I've had a lot of conversations with people, particularly uh, in recent years, right, with the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff about, about racism. And, you know, you come across people who... You know, I can think of a couple of conversations with people not dissimilar to myself in terms of their upbringing and, and whatnot who are just... Who who sort of don't believe it, you know? And they're like, they're like, nah, like you know, racism, you know? Because I got a friend who's, you know, uh, you know, family's from China and they're doing just fine, you know. That and you're like, fuck, like you, you come up and you almost can't. Some people you just sort of get to a dead end and you're like, I'll leave it. But um, the the systemic thing is, I feel like it's worth it's worth trying to kind of paint a picture for it because I think one of the hard things with the discussion around racism is that when you, if you say something is racist, people will generally take that as you referring to the, the like whoever is part of that system as being a racist person, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Or if you say something that is a racist statement and you might not be aware of that, and I would say that's a bit of a racist thing to say, chances are you think that Joey's calling you a racist. But yeah. in reality, I just called the thing that you said actually has a racist connotation. Totally. So, and tell me if I'm, if I'm not correct in this, but so as I see it, like with, with systemic racism, you end up with a system that is just, and systems evolve over time and they get patched and added onto. And of course, there, there is a, a strong case for parts of it being deliberately racist. But I'm guessing many times it just ends up being... It ends up being uh, undeliberately racist and it just works out that way. And it's not because there was one person that was like, hey, we need to victimise this group or we need to abuse this group. But it's, is, that, is that correct? Look, I think you're on the right, I think, I think you're on the right path. I think you're, you're right in terms of it's not, it's not coming back to, you know, there's a racist judge that's doing this or there's a racist doctor that won't do the right healthcare or... You know, one person that's making that conscious decision to make a decision that's, you know, informed by unconscious bias, you know, or, you know, stuff like that. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, there's, there's a space for that. But I think um, when we talk about like the systemic racism, often it, it comes from that um, perspective of like, of accessibility for people from the community that aren't, aren't white, you know, that come from diverse backgrounds, Aboriginal communities, Pacifica communities, diverse communities where English is their second language and those spaces and places aren't designed to be accessible, inclusive, equitable for people from those communities um, as 
as the first point of call. Um, you as know, you, you said, the education is a good example of that, yeah. where it's a system that's not built and it's not considering their particular cultural needs. So, therefore, it's not an equal entry point for, totally. for them. Yeah. Totally. And yeah, yeah, it is by definition kind of exclusive yeah. of those individuals. Yeah, and that, uh, yeah, and that's and you know this is our education structure, and this is how you learn here in Australia, and that's best practice. But if you're from a family or a community or a culture where like, well, actually, like, um, you know, holistic way of looking at education, or um, you know, storytelling is a critical component for how we would engage with this subject matter here to get to you know this knowledge sort of um, development. Yeah, that stuff's not commonplace to be prioritised or talked about. So then, um, yeah, it's 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 put on the back burner and it can be disengaging for some young people in some communities. But you know, you look at I think f- from an Aboriginal perspective, we're overrepresented in almost every negative sort of health statistic. When you look at health, life expectancy, education, sure. criminal justice system. Like it can keep going, you know, social economic status, whatever we're going to talk about. Um, and so you've got to look at it from the perspective of, you know, we have stuff like Close the Gap, which is this massive, you know, you probably heard the reference to it, massive premier's sort of uh, prime minister's sort of policy sort of um, program to address these issues, you know, and, and get that sort of stuff back to, you know, to, to improve the, the lived experience for Aboriginal people in Australia. But for me, I fundamentally think that those um, approaches fail because they they measure success based on Aboriginal people and communities fitting into Western, you know, um, designed metrics of what success looks like or what engagement and... and yeah, yeah, yeah. Look like, so. Interesting you said about the, you know, what success is and stuff. And, like, I don't know that much about you know all of the values of aboriginal culture but what i've kind of picked up is that and that's why it's kind of you know it's it's destined to fail with education systems because the the value systems aren't the same so i think all of our education system these days it's hugely academic and geared towards academia and kind of you know uh getting rich, playing part of the system type of thing. But there's cultures out there that just don't. And I think it's gone that way even more and more these days. You can see where all the funding goes. These days, sports are barely in school and things like this. But, um, yeah, like, if you don't have the same values, then it's never going to kind of work, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's to say that, like, <clears throat> that's not to say that there's not an amazing amount of Pacific young people and Aboriginal young people that are the most intelligent capable academic students out there because mm-hmm. there's so many of them so many of us but it's a recognition that you know like as 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 a system like we don't all fit into the same box and that you know when we look at like society as a whole the stats are telling us something you know and so when we talk about si- the system is failing like communities aboriginal communities largely but Pacific communities are overrepresented in a lot of those statistics too, right? Mm. So what is it about like how Western structures are operating here in Australia that are disengaging or, you know, unconsciously biased or systemically racist without consciously, you know, doing so, that's having an impact on those stats, you know? Um, and so that's where we really try and sort of fit into that space and really try and unpack that and, and work with you know those people in those positions to try and navigate solutions to try and move forward but i think a big part of that comes with like you've got to have people from these communities at the table making these decisions 
and you know driving that policy and driving that research you know if if we're talking about um, criminal justice policy and the most overrepresented people in their Pacific Islanders and Aboriginal people then it should be us sitting at the table talking about what are the solutions what do our communities need what's the biggest gap for why we keep coming into the prison you know we know our kids aren't bad but they keep getting arrested what's the what's the drama okay fuck they keep getting arrested at this time on a Friday night man, maybe we need to lobby for some funding so we can deliver some community programs on a Friday night. You know, maybe we need to look at, like, our culture in the islands and traditionally it was celebrated day in, day out. Whereas today in modern Sydney, it's not. Like, I've got Fijian kids and there's nowhere that my kids can go to learn their culture that isn't in a church. Mm. And so for me, it's like, oh, we're not really a massive church family. So then where does my son now go to learn his, his mecca, his dances, his language, um, when we know that culture is such a big part of our identity and belonging. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, if you, if you pull, to the, pull the layers off and you look at it, for me, that's what I see as one of the biggest problems with our men in prison is we've grown up in a, commu- in a, in a world where there, is no, there, there hasn't been value or role models in our community where where culture is seen as a strength and practiced and lived and pride, proud day in, day out. Um, and I think that's reflected in, you know, what, what I see in the prison system. I go into, it's crazy. Like I was working in, I was doing a mentoring program in Park Lee at the prison out there. And um, I was out there for NADOC week and um, seeing all the brothers there, you know, dancing, celebrating culture in the prison. Same for, um, I can't remember what the week was, but all the, Island or Pacifica boys were out there, um, you know, Samoan, Tongan, whatever, we're all doing, um, you know, celebrating culture for that week. And I was just like thinking in my head, like, you know, why, why does it have to be in a prison where, mm. like, we've got all our men together proud to do this? Like, why isn't mm. this, ha- why can't I find somewhere in my community that I can take my son to? Why does, why would my son have to end up in a prison before he can find a group of men where he can mm. learn those dances and, have a platform to celebrate it, you know? And, um, you know, there are some good things around, like, you know, there were some programs out in Western Sydney, but, like, we live here in South Sydney, and we've got big, diverse community, Aboriginal, Pacifica, everything in between, but there's not much out there. And so for, for me personally, like, it comes back to, like, culture is such a key part of the strength for our people in self-determination, in healing, in just strength in identity in ourselves, you know? Um, and I think that's the big part of, of what was taken away um, what's, and what's been missing for a long time. Um, and I think you see a lot of people that manage to break those cycles um, that have been entrenched in systemic disadvantage and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, more often than not, culture has been a critical ingredient. Why do they get separated so much? Like, and this is a discussion question, I guess. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I, I totally see what you're saying. Um, there's not places for them to express it, but I guess what is it about that? Because I know, like, I'm I'm now coming from the islander perspective. There's a lot of like yeah. a migrant perspective when you, you come over, and then you know you're trying to assimilate because you're at this place that has a lot more opportunity. And in many ways, when you were born, it was always like you were going to move to New Zealand and then New Zealand to Australia, yeah. and you're like bettering. And the further you go up, seemingly up towards more opportunity, the more you leave it behind. Totally. Is that kind of part of it? Because you're trying to become that thing. Yeah, I, th- I think. Yeah, I think. And look, I can't talk from a, 
you know, can't talk from a Pacifica perspective or anything like that, but only like reflecting on what you sort of say, it's like we, it, I feel like it's, it's one of those challenges where um, like I look at my own family and I sort of think like it's been a similar sort of journey. And so, but, but I just, I just keep from an Aboriginal perspective and having family that are, um, you know, connected to the Pacifica community, like I just see culture as the critical strength for your identity, full stop. Whether, regardless of where you're trying to get to, you know, when you migrate to a new country to try and achieve the best, you know, um, life for yourself and your family. Um, but for whatever reason, like this, it's, um, yeah, there's a disconnect here in, here in Australia. Like I see it, I see it for my kids. Um, and I think, you know, when I look at like stuff like, yeah, <laughs> like, I don't might get shot saying this, but like you know the the one four boys and that you know like I've, I've got a few friends that have done some video stuff with them and that. Who are the one four boys? Never heard of them, but um, the rap group, you know the um, drill group, the drill uh, group. Nah, you ever do some bars? No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> local like local drill. Yeah, group? Mount, Mount Drill, Mount like West. Okay, Mount boys. okay, yeah, yeah. I'm and, hip. Um, you know, really, to- really talking to that whole community out there, you know, and. Um, all that sort of stuff and um, that real – the culture out there of, like, survival and, um, you know, the struggle and all that sort of stuff and the strength that they found is in that collective, right, in that – that the, whether you call it a gang or whether you call it whatever it is, like, that's their tribe that they've found to survive. You know, Mountie, Malik's always in the thing, right? Whereas, like, for me, I'm like, well, <coughs> the big part of that there is 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 – is tribal but a massive part of that is maybe disconnection from like culture and identity and strength like so um, there's an energy there and they've found it somewhere but it's disconnected from kind of where it originated yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. and um yeah i just seen it time and time again like um where culture has just been like the key ingredient for finding you know your way back to who you really are you know and where you're going and I think for so many young people, like Pacifica, Aboriginal, wherever, like if you have a, if you have a, if you've migrated, if your family has migrated, and maybe you've been disconnected from your roots and stuff. There's so much power in 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 finding where you've came from and being able to reconnect and and un, and discover your connection to that part of yourself. And as young kids, you know, if we haven't grown up in communities where that's uh, a lived thing day in day out, you know, we our, our peers become our you know our our um, tribe. You know, yeah, that's yeah. how we survive, and you know whatever, and how we get up. But I think when we get older, and and you know, we have kids, and you know all that sort of stuff, you start to reconnect to like, okay, like actually, like where you know how does this all connect? You know, when I'm looking at my kid, like where's he where's he come from now, and and how does this inform who he becomes as a man, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's um yeah it's uh, it's full on man, but I have those thoughts. Because I'm kind of like at that, my parents migrated, so I had some siblings born there, but the last three of us were born here. But I grew up going back since a young age, and my dad was a strong connection to taking us back since we were young. Yeah. Um, he's passed now. Um, Mum was more like, she's here, she was all about education. So she's, 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 she's been here for, I don't know how many years, since 77 but she's only gone back to Fiji a handful of times. Yeah, cool. So she's kind of left that. She had a, you know, 
a, a rough time there as well, and she's always very been here. But dad was the big connection there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so now, now I have kids. I'm already kind of more removed from there. Mm-hmm. And then you know, generally I'm busy just raising the kids. You're in Sydney, you're oh, doing yeah. it. But it takes an effort to like try and get them connected back. And yeah. um, we're going to we're going to Fiji next month. But we all haven't been for five years. And anyway, it's just something I think about a lot. And to try to, at any corner, any stage, whether it's, um, what do they have, Harmony Day at school or Cultural Week, Cultural Day, dress-ups, or even the rugby, it's just like I'm trying my best, but I feel like, oh, shit, I'm not doing a great job. But I know in time, like, this trip is something that I've been kind of just trying to make happen for so long. Totally. Like, um, yeah, I'll make it happen, but it's hard. It's very hard, you know, but your culture and your identity—it's it's your superpower. Mm. You got know, to you got to nurture it, and you got to, um, you know, however however that looks to find that way to because when you, no matter what whatever work you do on yourself, like you'll model for your kids, right? So if you, um, so like you know, you guys you run, you know, the the jungle here, and there's this whole um, values around how you do what you do, and how you live and how you the community that you've created and that's gonna those values and how you live and operate by that's gonna filter down to your kids right and the same thing goes for your culture and your identity like so your pride in that the work that you do to reclaim it um you reclaim your language if you don't speak your language like you know stories and customs and even if even if your kids just grow up knowing that like that was actually something my dad really valued like and so they'll always value that because they knew that you valued it, you know? Mm. That's how I try and think about it anyway. That's true. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you more about the business because um, I don't know that whole space and got some relatives and my sister used to work in social work and, like, when I think of those big projects and those big problems that Joey was saying, like, I have no idea how that goes, how that happens, you know? Um, so I'm wondering, like, uh, what... Like, these are my dumb questions. Like, how many people are in the business? Did you do it alone? How do you fund it? Is it like where you get government funding? And who's employing you? Yeah. Who's invested enough to make, to go, hey, let's change this thing? You know what yeah, I mean? Because yeah. it sounds like you guys would be the instigators for it. So do you go out and lobby for them to employ you to make the change? Like, How does that work? Yeah, a bit of both. Like, um, so we're only a small startup. There's about five of us in the impact policy team. Um and, you know, a lot of our work comes out from, you know, there's either sort of tenders that will go out for work that needs to happen that's been identified as priorities and we'll sort of lobby or apply and campaign to try and get it. Um, and then the other part is about really trying to identify who are the decision makers, who are the decision makers in this space, who's got the power around decision making um, and really trying to connect the dots with who they are, trying to get, uh, get in a room with them and just being able to demonstrate you know, I guess um, we we try not get in there and try and sell ourselves. It's more about getting in there and creating a space where we can hear about what the challenges are, um, and and more often than not, than not, if we can get if we get to the place where we get in a room with someone, often it's because that they've seen the content that we've put out, they've seen you know they've seen who we are, they've seen our capability statement, they have a level of you know curiosity or or respect for what we do. So by the time we get in a room with someone like that, it's about really giving them a space to hear from them, um, and then us just listening, and then going okay, us, and then and then really listening like actively to try and pick out where are the points here where we think 
that there could be a really significant piece of work that can happen. Um, so like that justice stuff, you know, we got in the room with this person and um, they're telling us, you know, a big yarn about all the challenges and complexities with that youth justice space. Um, but, you know, out of that came this, this small piece of work, but that small piece of work could potentially have a massive impact for how the future of that work sort of looks. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of, sort of how, how it looks in a, in a bit of a nutshell. Um, but, yeah, and, and, and how we deliver it, you know, from day to day, like, can, can look very different. Like, we worked on this project um, out in regional New South Wales, out in Bowerville. Um, and for anyone, like, we've talked about justice a lot in this podcast. And um, if, you've, if you haven't already, if you haven't heard, heard of the, ever heard of the Bowerville murders... No, no. So it's I'll, I'll talk to it a little bit, but there for anyone that's listening that wants to understand more about it, there's a short podcast by the Guardian, six episode mini series. It's a really, really good listen. Uh, but basically, these put a link in the show notes. Yeah, sounds good. Gary Jubilant um, was the lead detective on that case, and he was the same detective that was investigating the disappearance of William Tyrrell, um, that young boy there. But what happened was three young Aboriginal kids. Um, were murdered within the space of three months from the same street um, from, you know, what appeared to be like a... Uh, there was, like, parties that happened in, in, in that street over a period of three months. And, um, yeah, three people got murdered within three months, three Aboriginal young people. We talk about systemic racism. This was the perfect example of systemic racism because when that family went to the police, so the first kid that went missing... I'm not going to say the first kid because I, I don't want to get it wrong, but when... One of the kids, so one of the victims was a four-year-old girl, Evelyn Greenup. Uh, one of the boys was a 16-year-old boy, Clinton Speedy Duro. Um, and the third one was a 16-year-old girl, Colleen Walker. Um, there's still a missing persons thing out for her at the moment because they never found her remains. But the coroners did an inquiry and determined that her, her case was, was a, a murder or a death. And um, so anyway, so the, so the families, as soon as the... the daughter went missing the families went to the police station went to the police station a regional community first there was no police officer there in a regional town so by the time they got the police officer there um they said our kid our daughter's dis- like our daughter's disappeared we can't find her the police officer said oh maybe she's just gonna walk about you'll be right you'll find her just completely brushed the family off and they were like can you help us look at her and they just were like no nah, no nah, she's just gonna walk about she'll be right she'll turn up they just left the family so the family like that was everyone knows that in a missing persons case, the first forty-eight hours are critical, right? So it was like over two days before police did anything for that for that family, and then what that happened is they actually sent in instead of sending in like a missing persons crew to investigate, they sent in like the family and community services crew, so like the people that investigate like child misharm and mistreatment. So when you talk about like systemic bias and racism like fucking that's the prime example um of what it looked like you know um and then like yeah there's there's three cases there that happened and um you know there was only ever one person of interest the the there was all this you know we talk about systemic racism the whole um investigation of that case from the beginning to the end was just so like racist and inaccessible for Aboriginal people. The the investigation and inquiry of the Aboriginal family members as part of that, um, the the way that they were engaged with, um, there was a whole sort of parliamentary inquiry into the impact of 
this investigation and the and, and how it was just a complete failure and the impact of that on the families. So as a result of that, so this happened like 30 years ago. So, you know, full credit to these families. They'd never stopped fighting for their kids. You know, they've never stopped fighting for justice. They had one person of interest ever in the whole three cases. Um, he ended up getting charged at one point and getting in prison. And then he got released. Charges got dropped. Um, and then... I got to be a, I got to be a part of um, through work. We got to be a part of a a. So the families kept lobbying for like thirty years for justice, and they ended up getting support from um, you know different members of parliament and people that could see that something really wrong happened here. And um, so they went to the court of criminal. They went to the court of criminal appeal. They went to parliament. So you know, in in, a, in um, you ever heard of the law double jeopardy? Mm. Like if you, the term don't know the law so if you get like if you stole that bottle of water and got found not guilty but Joey had a photo of you stealing it you couldn't get charged again for stealing that water because you've already been found not guilty right so that's basically what it is so in this case so this family had all this evidence that came up so in one of the in one of the cases which is you know like years after Clinton um, had his life taken this, and there's a documentary out about this case as well, like about about, that, about these cases. But this truck driver come through the town, and he's, he was driving through doing his regional pickup, and he saw a body in the middle of the road. Mm. And he saw this car on the side of the road, and this guy picking this body up, off dragging it, and putting it in the back seat or in the boot. I can't remember. And um, he's pulled up in the truck next to the guy, and he's like, oh everything all right you're right and then the guy was like oh yeah, yeah my mate's just drunk he's just had a, a massive night you know i'm just chucking him in the car and um he's like oh okay and then he kept driving and he said oh you know never felt never he, he said it felt right didn't feel that right but he never thought of it again and um years had gone past and he was at a hospital and he saw um a flyer about the case and it was like a, uh, and he saw the picture of the guy. And he was like, "That's the fucking guy from when I drove the truck." And so he came forward with that evidence, and um, so that was one of the key pieces of evidence that the families were trying to campaign to court. So even in the past twenty years, he's never changed his story. It's always been the same story. Um, so there's that critical piece. There's other pieces as well, um, but like, yeah, you talk. And so this family, like, they campaigned with the support of members of parliament and staff to get the law um, of double jeopardy changed. Because that, that guy that originally did the time, it turns out he is the guy. That's what, the, his, well, this is, that's what they believe, yeah. So he should be doing life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's what so – then, so, so then he got re- – so they got – so they changed – so in Australia, the law for double jeopardy has been changed. So if you can prove that you've got fresh and compelling evidence – then you can bring someone back to retry them for a crime. Right. So all this work had gone in, and all these, all this stuff, all this research, all this evidence had been gathered. Gary Jubilant, the lead case on William Tyrrell's disappearance, he was the lead guy. Um, all this work had happened. Um, they took it to the Court of Criminal Appeal, one of the highest courts in Australia, um, and it just there was a, um, there was one word in the legislation. That they said let the f- let the case down, and so the case was not successful. So then this guy went back to wherever he lives, living his life, doing whatever, 
Um, and the families are still fighting, still campaigning for justice all these years later. But, um, you know, you talk about systemic stuff, like that's some of the challenges. But It's horrible. Yeah. We came in from a perspective of um, we were working in that space from a community development perspective. So we had a role with the whole of government in terms of being able to try and... Um, after... So the previous... Before the... Uh, I think it was Scipioni was the Minister for Police, or Commissioner for Police... Before he retired, he flew into Bowerville on a helicopter and apologised personally to all the families. Like it was like one of the last things he did before he retired. Wow. Um, which is like a big thing, you know, potentially opens up a few doors for civil claims or any of that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, that's not my space to talk to. But um, just a real recognition of the systemic failing of, of that system for those families. Um, but we came, so coming off the back of that, we came in from a community development perspective. Um, government wanted to make sure that uh, nothing like that could ever happen in this, t- in this town again. So, you know, what, what resources um, were needed, did community need to be able to build the resilience and capacity of community to navigate this sort of stuff? Um, so we went in and we worked with community to let them determine what they needed in their community in terms of... This is in Barrowville. Yeah, this okay. is in Barrowville. So we worked really closely with the families. What type of stuff do you, does, do you come up with in that case? The big... You know, there was not a lot happening for young people, not a lot of opportunities and services and organisations or anything like that. So that was a big part of of that sort of response plan that was developed, was a real focus on young people and being able to provide services that could address that sort of stuff. Um, but again, as well, a lot of the systemic stuff that impacts uh, all other communities was presence in that community. So we talked about education earlier. A big part of them was talking about, like, you know, we want more mental health support in the schools for our young people. Uh, we want, you know, counsellors to be available and all that sort of stuff to be available. But on that, like say in that circumstance, the, the key failing from what, I, from what you're saying was the, were the police, that was their response to it or lack thereof. And so is there not, like as a, you know, in terms of like your role, your role wasn't to go in and fix the, the police, right? That's... So you've got to. So I'm guessing you're going in like, well, what what can we affect? Okay, well, let's talk with the community that's been affected, and, and that's. But how does that feel knowing that there's a part like the main the main issue in that in that particular case is something that, well, I'm guessing at, at least at that time you don't have any influence on. Yeah, yeah. How do how do you, you know, I guess how does that sit with you, and how do you, you know? It's a good question because it, the program I was working on. So I wasn't involved in the legal side. I was involved in the community development side. But they, in terms of timeline, they both ran concurrently. So when I was running the community development piece, the law and justice stuff was happening. And um, because it's a small town, most of the families involved in that law and justice stuff were involved with the work I was doing. But when you're an Aboriginal person that's connected to community and you're a face for government, you end up doing everything. You know, like, so the families I'll be talking to are like, oh. Because you kind of get, like, you've got a connection there. Yeah, you've got a connection there. You you know, you, you're able to build relationships. And so you end up finding, so I, I ended up being involved in that justice space more than I probably traditionally would have, just because that's how I fell into that space and the families needed that support. They needed Aboriginal staff that could help them navigate access to that sort of space better and things like that. Um but yeah, it, it was it was really tricky, and it was it was one of those things where like for me it was really hard because a big part of my piece was community development, but there was a big healing aspect. 
So government committed to investing in um, like healing for the families. So there was you know funding there to support like healing programs. Um, we worked on the building of a memorial for the families as well. Um, so we're a big part of like the consultation and development of that. So like there was a lot of like really like infrastructure structural work that was happening that was really layered with this fucking complex trauma and history and and sorry business that had happened there. Um, for me at the time it was really hard because like my son was the same age as Evelyn who who, who was murdered, and um, so you know working with like family members that had you know been connected there it was it was it was really hard and um, you know I'll probably never forget that piece of work you know my whole life I don't ever think like and being a part of one of the things we did with um, the memorial was we um, again comes back to um, the justice system right like there's a lot of our people in prison this this healing this memorial was a big part of um, the family's healing journey you know healing is often a lifelong sort of thing we don't just click go, go for a process and it's finished um, but we launched this memorial and I sort of said to the families I was like look if you want like I understand that there's a lot of people that can't be here whether they're in custody whether they just can't get back to community so if you want we can film it and you can have it and then you know people that have missed the opportunity can be able to see it you know you can share it internally in your own family groups or whatever and um, I was like it's not for us to use for whatever it's completely for you guys so um and they were like yeah if you could that'd be really really good and um so my mate that i work with now um he came out flew out and he filmed it and um i'll never forget it because like it was like he wasn't even there but then the piece he produced at the end of it it's only like 90 uh, 90 second two minute piece um but like fuck, make you cry man like so like really captures the significance and the import like the just the emotion of what was happening there that day for those families um but yeah that's yeah that's it's, it's a really really complex and, and um, amazing space to get to work in and you know that's the sort of learning and experience that's been able to sort of drive a lot of the work with impact policy you know being able to navigate a whole range of different systems that are working alongside each other that are interconnected but sometimes not speaking to each other the way they should and, and trying to navigate solutions but I guess one of the big things that reaffirms is is how critical it is to have people leading this work, like with impact policy, that have the ability to be able to engage and connect with communities on the ground because um, that's the most critical piece is that we need to be able to give communities a voice in you know, making decisions and driving change. It's not about us because then we just become another decision maker in the government or wherever about how do we use how we do what we do our values our principles of how we do our work how do we do that to bring these people in and elevate their voice give them a platform to be able to drive change um so yeah and that's a big part of what we're trying to do with so like you know government will pay us all this money to you know do research evaluation communications community engagement advocacy all this sort of stuff and um but in the community sector, our communities need, like our community organisations, they need that stuff as well. So they need research, evaluation, they need all that suite of services, but they can't afford it. They're running on the smell of an oily rag, just trying to keep their head above water. Um, and so we see them this massive capacity. It's not a capability gap, it's a capacity gap. Community organisations don't have the ability to be able to engage in those conversations on an even playing field 
because there's an imbalance of power and resources, right? So one thing we're trying to do at Impact Policy, we call it Spark Impact, and we try and reinvest our our resources and our time into doing that work for community organisations as well. So if we're doing, you know, for example, I talked about that justice research piece that we're doing, um, you know, if a community organisation approaches us to do something similar, we'll do that for them as well, you know, if they want to drive that sort of stuff. Um, and we see that as the massive difference. We see a lot of really good community organisations doing amazing work, but no one knows about them. Mm. No one hears about them. No one, they don't have flashy, um, you know, video work or, you know, a nice annual report. Um, and then often, you know, more often than not, you see the ones that do, and they're often the ones that are producing, like, the lower outcomes, you know what I mean? Mm. But they've got the flashy, mm. the flashy sort of stuff in front of you, and that gets them in front of the decision makers and all that because they look like they're talking the same language and yeah yeah so yeah marketing and and sales huh it's yeah it's critical it's critical even on the community ground you know can you talk on what your your upbringing was like because i'm you know spoken about like some of your previous work which how old are you 35 it sounds like you've done a lot of fucking good work in your time well done Mm. yeah like you know and study and and all that stuff um but yeah, like your childhood, we were talking earlier off, off air that you grew up in Glebe. Yep. I'm guessing then that that must have been hugely influential in your passion to, to go into this yeah. realm of, of social work and whatnot. Yeah, look, massively. Um, yeah, bro, I grew up in Glebe. Um, a probably really challenging sort of upbringing in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I've got a father who, I've got a mother and father who both were lovely people that had really experienced you know, the worst trauma that most people could experience as children um and so they really dealt with a lot of um although they had coexisting issues of alcohol and drug addiction and mental health you know um illness so my mum more so she was diagnosed with um schizophrenia so she was you know growing up with her she was really unwell um they used a lot of drugs as well to you know often would use the language of self-medicate you know this is my medication you know for what i've been through in my life like i remember growing up here that hearing that sort of language and thinking fuck sad but anyway like um beautiful people but just been through a lot of trauma and yeah had a lot of a lot of challenges so childhood was pretty hard um you know we grew up in a lot of poverty um you know we used to rely on like you know there's this massive charity at the moment called oz harvest and, like, we used to have that before Oz Harvest even existed. You know, we used to live off, like, this guy used to do pickups from Woolies back in the day when they were about to throw out their food before it goes off. And he'd deliver it for, to all the houses in Glebe that were struggling. And I just have memories of, like, living off these, like, fucking pizza bases. <laughs> that was <laughs> Nothing it. On it. I put butter on it. <laughs> yeah. And that was it, man. Yeah. You know, it was good enough. And um, probably why I've got gluten intolerance now, but... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, look, it was it was really tough, man. And um, but in a lot of ways, it sort of shaped who I, who I was. But um, when I got into year seven, I just went off the rails. I got expelled from Balmain High in the first three weeks of year seven. Um, I'd never been in trouble in primary school as a kid. I was a great kid, but for whatever reason, I just I don't know. I got into three fights in the space of like three weeks. Um, I didn't get. I got asked to leave, you know, which was the the equivalent you know in your first three weeks of year seven so then i found myself at glebe high um and glebe high was great i loved it fell fell into the basketball team um and did really well um that that school went on to have a really successful career in basketball they won two state titles for a state 
you know, mm. school in the struggle. Shout out to Glebe, mm. like solid basketball program, program came out of there. But, um, but I started to commit a lot of crime <coughs> as a kid and not even knowing. So you talk, like, the first time I broke into a house, I was 12 years old and I didn't even know, like, I saw, I, I knew, but, you know, but they talk about, you know, um, the legal definition of, like, culpability is, like, mens, oh, yeah. mens rea. Like, you know, did, did he know that he was going to do that when he did that action? Mm. So I remember being 12 and this kid was a year older than me. He's like, oh, let's go in. We're going to break into this house and go in and there's this junkie that lives in there and he'll be asleep and we'll just take some stuff. And I was like, yeah, right, whatever. <laughs> I'll just follow you, you know. Um, so, you know, I fell into, like, just doing silly stuff like that, just following people as a 12-year-old kid, you know. Um, you know, getting into stolen cars, playing around with that sort of stuff for a little bit. Um, yeah, so those first couple of years of high school were pretty, like, pretty tricky, pretty slope, pretty pretty slippery slope. Um, you know, I don't want to talk too much about a lot of that sort of stuff, but um, I guess what really became a blessing in disguise was I actually got cancer. So when I was 14, I got diagnosed with leukemia. and um, no way. Yeah, and so... So amongst, you know, dealing with the really complex disadvantage and, and, and struggle that our families was going in, I was still, you know, I was still on this basketball team playing in this rep program that was doing really well, um, but I'd still, like, disappear for, you know, days on end and I was still getting suspended and all this sort of stuff. And, um, and it was in February before the rep season was about to start and I kept getting sick all the time. I couldn't work out why I kept getting sick and... I remember I went to the, I tried to go to the, I was like, Mom, I've got to go to the doctors. And I was like, can you drive me? She's like, nah, I can't drive you. And I was like struggling to breathe. And I was like, no, nah, no, nah, can you drive me? She's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not driving you. I've been drinking or whatever. I was like, fuck. So I had to walk to the doctors. Would have taken me 10 minutes normally to walk to the doctors from our house in Glebe. Took me about like an, over an hour. I'll never forget that walk in my life. I had to stop about five times to like catch my breath. It's like a 14 year old oh. kid. Got in there. The doctor was like, she did a test or something and she was like, nah, something's not right. I just called my mum. My mum came. They took me to the hospital the next minute. In the hospital, man, sick as a dog for like 12 months. Had leukaemia. Luckily, it was caught early. It was a treatable one. Acute lymphoblastic leukaemia is really treatable for young people. Um, but it was crazy. My whole world went upside down. Um, in that space of time, I had a stroke. So I had a side effect to... Um, had a side effect to the medication that they they put this medication in your uh, lumbar puncture into your spine and the fluid goes up into your brain chemotherapy goes up into your brain it's supposed to um, they do that to prevent secondary cancers you know coming up in your brain and stuff and side effect i had a stroke which was crazy because in my head i always thought a stroke was like Saying to come on really quick. I'm having a stroke, like you see it in the movies. And like stuff. a heart attack, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I fall on the ground, I'm having a stroke. And, but for me, man, it was crazy. Like it was like a two day event. Like I got up to make breakfast and I went to pick my toast up out of the toaster and it just fell out of my hand. And I was like, oh, it's weird. My hand got pins and needles. And I picked up my ball, had a ball in the kitchen, went to bounce the ball. My arm was just dead. I was like, oh, this is bizarre. What's going on with my arm? I went to see my dad. I was like, hey, I f- something's wrong with my arm. I feel I need to go to the hospital. I can't really feel it. And he's like, oh, fuck, yeah, all right, we'll take you in. And um, my dad had, like, a big anger problem in that. Like, I think when I got sick, it triggered a lot of his childhood trauma. So he was pretty unwell those times anyway. But he took me into the hospital. And then um, but we were there for, like, 
hours, you know, it's like public health system. It's there for hours. In that point in time, my dad's had a, like a fight with the doctor. He's had a fight with the nurse. He's like, fuck this, I'm leaving. And he left. So I'm just sitting there by myself waiting for the doctor. Um, the doctor comes to see me. He's a student doctor. And he's like, oh, he goes, have you been drinking? And I'm like, I haven't been drinking, bro. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, go on, man. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I can't see anything that's wrong with you. You know, it must be fine. And um, I was like, oh, okay. So then at that point in time, the social worker – Social worker knew about my family and that because of the dramas. So social worker came and see me and she was like, oh, I'll give you some um, a voucher for a taxi to get home. I was like, okay, thanks so much, you know. And um, so I caught a taxi. I was like, oh, must must have been a strain. Oh, I can't remember if that's strained or something. I was like, must be strained or whatever. So I'm in the taxi and I'm going home and it's um, about three o'clock in the afternoon, close to three, and I'm looking in the rearview mirror of the passenger seat on the front side and I can see my mouth drooping. Like going down like that, and I'm like, like, I'm like, I get literally get to the front of my house, and I get out, and I start to slur my words, and I start to, I can't talk, and I'm like, and I so I start crying because I'm like, I know now something's not right, so I walk in the door, my dad's in there, and they're doing whatever, and I'm like. <laughs> I can imagine like how fucking how crazy he must be because it's like I w- as soon as I walk back in the door I'm like I can't I can't speak like something's wrong and um he's like nah fuck like no way like get away like there's yeah. no way like you've just come back from the hospital they wouldn't have sent you here back home if you're not well and um so I've walked out of the house having a stroke and I, we live two doors down from the park and school was finishing my best mate from down the road was coming home from school and um he sees me at the park and he's like what's going on and i'm like crying and i can't talk and i'm having a stroke and so he comes with me to my house and um he's like oh i'm like dad please like you've got to take me to the hospital he goes fuck all right like chucks me in the truck he had a truck we drove to the hospital and um drove to the hospital ran with children's hospital sitting there they saw me pretty quickly same doctor, a student doctor comes down with someone else. Craziest thing in the world, bro. As soon as he came, the symptoms reversed. Oh, fucking oh. disappeared. I'm telling you, no word of a lie. Oh. So he walks in and he's like, oh, so you're back. What's going on? And I'm like telling him the symptoms and everything. And he's like, does his checkup. And he's like, you look fine. He's like, maybe you had a panic attack. <sighs> and in my head, I'm thinking like, Oh, you know, I do have a bit going on. Like, maybe <laughs> I did have a panic attack. So I was like, but every all the symptoms have gone away. So I'm like, okay, sweet. Sounds good. I feel good. That's what it was. So I went, we went home. Your dad would be spewing at this point. But dad's like, fuck, <laughs> this fucking kid, mate. Um, so we went home. I got a Big Mac. I was playing basketball out the front for my best mate. Felt great. Woke up the next day, completely paralyzed down the left side of my body. I had to crawl to my dad's room right with my right hand like take me to the hospital they took me there I was in the brain trauma unit for four Fuck. days didn't speak I can't didn't speak for four days didn't eat for two or didn't speak for two didn't eat for four can't remember which one it was but um, it was fucking crazy Oof. crazy crazy and um, it was scary because they couldn't tell me I could see the fear in my parents eyes I could see the fear about like okay I never seen them scared you know and um and the doctors with brain stuff it's really hard to tell so they couldn't give anyone any answers on what recovery could look like so i just 
you know, thank whoever was looking out that it managed to reverse itself. Um, and, you know, I'm able to hear, be here today and do what I'm doing. But, yeah, it was crazy, bro. Incredible story. Yeah, and then, yeah. And then not long after that, I left home. So things got crazy. And then I moved out of home, like, uh, six months later. Right. Before 15? Yeah, I think I just turned 15. Wow. Yeah. Where'd you go? Um, so the, the social workers at the hospital, they were like, they referred me, they, they were like, we're going to, you know, I was at that age where, like, it's really hard. When there's kids that are going through neglect and abuse and stuff like that, it's um, once you get to, like, 12, 13, the system's so overwhelmed, man, that they're not interested in those kids. Like, they're too old now. So I was in that sort of group. It's like a teenager, you know? And, um, but they were like, we're going to refer you to this service called Bernardo's. So they have an out-of-home care, foster care placement. They have a program for adolescent kids. Um, you know, we're going to make a referral there because we think you need some support of that. I was like, yeah, all right, whatever. Um, so I ended up going to live in um, this group home in Kings Cross for a bit. Um, lived in another foster care placement um, in Elizabeth Bay. And then, I, um, and then I ended up getting my own independent living place in Glebe because I was still at school but I, as part of that program when I was a bit older after that but yeah it was it was heavy bro but I couldn't I couldn't stay living at home anymore because it was just yeah that was just so unwell you know and um but I had a younger sister at the time and she was 10 years younger so she ended up like a year after that you know my dad was living down the block in Redfern and um you know docs at the time came in and removed her so she was um, in foster care from the age of seven to the age of 18, um, which was pretty rough, but yeah, it was what it was and it was probably, you know, needed to happen to be honest. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of, a lot of life happened, bro, in a couple of years. <laughs> like, um, yeah. How did you, end, how did you end up at uni? Like where, you know, yeah. What was the circumstances where you kind of yeah. pulled out and saw something better and you were like, fuck. Yeah, so like living in the foster care space and just trying to like survive and work everything out. Like it's funny, like I was in a real bad space before I got cancer and when I got out of cancer, I had this real different perspective, right? Because you're actually confronted with with your mortality like and life and all that sort of stuff. So I was thinking about that at a very young age. And so I, I definitely had this, you know... Um, Reflection and, and understanding about thinking about what purpose was and all that. But that being said, I still fell back into the same community that I was from. So I still, after a while, fell back into same, similar sort of cr- sorts of crowds where crime was happening, where drugs was happening, where all that sort of stuff was very normalised. And um, you know, fell into a bit of that sort of stuff myself. But the, bit, the best thing was that I never left school, so I always stayed connected to school. But I just showed up, never did nothing. And what I didn't realise, because I never applied, never applied anything in class, was that I actually had a side effect from the stroke. So when I got to like year year twelve, I tried to have a crack in the assign, in the exam, and my hand would get so cramped, and I'd like the two hour exam, and I'd write one page, <laughs> and like I'd be like, oh, man, why is my hand? So-? And then I, and then I actually had to think like, is this because I had a stroke? And then I went to see the doctor, and the doctor's like. If 100% it's because you had a stroke. Like, you should be, like, getting special provisions and using a laptop or getting a writer to write for you and all that sort of stuff. So, luckily, I ended up going through that journey in year 12. And, um, 
and I ended up getting that sort of stuff and getting access to that. But I was living by myself in Glebe and um, so through the St. Bernardo's Youth Charity, they had this program, so I had my own place. and um, But I still never applied myself and I got to my trials and I failed every exam except for like PD Health PA, I feel like 50 out of 100. I remember going back to my house by myself, sitting there and just figuring like, fuck, I've got nothing else. Like, this is it. Like, whatever happens here, like, is going to determine, like, what the next steps are for where we're going. Like, and it was like, I was like, no one else can fix this but No me. one's going to do it for no you. No one's going to yeah. do it, man. And I've been through a lot of stuff and I can blame a lot of people. But at the end of the day, like, I've got a space, I've got some time. Like, fuck, I need to have a crack. And so something just happened, man, like a flick, a switch flicked. The next day after I failed all those trials, I went to Sydney Uni Library every day. Every day, I swear to God, every day after school. And then when Stuvac came, the eight-week gap before the final exams, I was at Sydney Uni Library from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., 12 hours straight. I was like a man possessed. And I retaught myself the whole fucking syllabus. I got all the books. I like worked out like because it's all rote learning, right? Same for this mainstream education system. Shout out to the Department of Education, man. <laughs> Test me on any of that. I don't remember it. Um, it's all rote learning, bro. So like, just got to just got to memorize it. Just got to do the reps. Yeah, just got to do the reps. So I was just like broke up my days into the subjects. Just repped it out. Repped it out. I realized that no one had told me that when you go into an English exam, you should actually have the essay ready before you go into the yeah, exam. Yep. You should have the creative writing piece ready before you go into the exam because the questions, they might be different, but they're all going to test you on the same out, outcome, so the same topic outcome. So you can shape your essay or creative writing piece to the question. You don't have wow. to reinvent it every time. No one had taught me that. So I was like, Never heard that. So, so you're telling me I can, I can do all this before I go in? They're like, yeah, that's what it's best practice, bro. <laughs> so, yeah. so what happened? What did you did you pass or bro? I topped our I topped our year in legal studies. So I went from failing the trials six weeks before that to getting like ninety two in the final exams. We can put a copy in the show notes if anyone <laughs> for talk, verification talk, talking out of it. Um, yeah, got that like over ninety something in the legal studies. I think my lowest mark was like seventy six. Um, it was it was it was crazy, bro. It was mad. And my final ATAR was like. Um, 76 so Fuck. because I'd failed all my assignments but I'd aced all my exams you know my ATAR was somewhere in the middle yep um, and luckily that gave me just enough to be able to get into teaching at UNSW no way yeah so that sort so it of it happened from there from year 12 yeah happened from there bro but like I tell people as well though like with home, youth homelessness and, and the struggle like things just got still got harder so like I got to uni and as soon as I finished high school they're like Oh, sorry, now you've turned 18, you can't, like, I was, I was 19, actually, so, but they extended it. They were like, once you turn 18, you can't live in this service anymore. But they're like, oh, we're going to try and find a loophole because you're still in year 12. And I'm like, yeah, of course you fucking should. Where am I going to go? Mm. Like, that's what you get paid to do. Like, find it, you know? So they were like, oh, we'll try and hold it out because you haven't turned 19 yet. So they pushed it out till I finished my HSC, and they're like, sorry, Sam, we've got to exit you. Like that. And you're fair enough. There's other young people that need a place. Mm. So I was exiting them, but I had nowhere to go. 
So I was hopeless again. So they, so they're literally like, "Hey, there's a date, and you got to be gone by then, and it's it's on you." Yeah, they do their best to create like an exit plan and try and link you up with services, but for me, it sort of just it sort of fell apart, and um, I had nowhere to go. And so I couch surfed. I one of these aunties took me in Glebe, and I just had this because I'd gone through that. One of your aunties or an auntie? An auntie, in the which is just like a like an older. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just like a leader, um, and and and. Yeah, extended family member in our community. She took us in for um, for the first half of that year after high school, and I was just because I'd gone through such a mission to do what I did in my HSC. I've really felt like if I didn't go to uni, I would fail because everyone would be like, "Oh, Sam, just defer for twelve months. Work, defer, work, mm. work out your housing stuff. You know, just it's fine. Everyone defers. Take a gap year. You've done well so far. Yeah, yeah. And I, but I just had this thing like." I felt like if I deferred, I was going to fail. I had to prove to I, that I could go and do it. wasn't finished yet. It wasn't finished. I had, proved, I had to prove that I earned to, to be there and have a crack. So I went, I did my first semester teaching and um, I was couch surfing at this house and I got through. I got like, you know, 50s or whatever, but so stoked that I passed, you know, my first semester. And then after that, um, you know, I, I couldn't stay where I was staying anymore and I was homeless again. And, um, yeah, it was it was pretty hard. So then I made a decision to defer. Took twelve months off, um, and I was cruising around trying to work out what I was going to do. And um, then crime was massive in Glebe, and you know it still is. You know, youth crime's big for you in Glebe. But I found myself back in my community, back in what was very normal and safe. And a lot of a lot of young people were getting into you know getting into crime. There was people dealing drugs. All this sort of stuff was happening. And the biggest turning point in my life was um, one of these older guys had gotten out of prison. You know, he was about six years older. And um, he come up to us, me and my best mate at the time, still my best mate. And um, he goes, oh, I've got this opportunity for us where we can make some serious money. Um, you know, a place where I'm working. You know, they do a dump. They collect money every week, same place, same time. All you guys got to do is just grab the bag, you know. To hit this guy, take the bag, go. So literally like, oh, okay, sweet, sounds all right. Jumped in the car. He's like, we'll, we'll go and we'll, you know, do it. He's worked in the film industry, do like a recce. <laughs> like <laughs> went out there and um, see the place. This is where it's going to happen. It's going to come out of there. It's, it's going to get taken across there. We'll park the stolen car there. This is how it's going to go down. And um, so I was like, yeah, okay. You know, in my head I'm just like, you don't know what else, you know, like, there's nothing else. I could get a job anywhere. Like, even when I was trying so hard, like, didn't have a job, didn't have anywhere to live. I was just like, part of me was just like, I felt like I proved so much as well that I was just like, you know what, fuck it. Like, oh, whatever. And um, so, like, 100%, I was going to do it. And one of the foster carers I used to live with, he was going just by chance in the week before he goes oh, I'm going to Europe for like three or four weeks um, do you want to come and house sit my house in the cross I was like yeah okay so I was house sitting his house in the cross so I had somewhere to stay for a couple of weeks and um, that's why I love training bro like I never stopped training after I came back from having cancer because I became so passionate about health and life and um, so even through all this struggle I still trained and I went to the PCYC at Glebe. And I used to train there Monday, Wednesday, Friday, religiously in the mornings. Is that the one opposite 
Tram sheds now? Yeah, that's it. That's yep. the one. That's the one. An OG club there. And um, so the morning of this job, this, this, this crime that was going to get committed was coming. And I went to the gym like any day of the week in the morning and there was a copper that worked there. And um, he was a great guy and um, he knew I was from community. He'd talk to everyone I was just coming out from my workout like seven, eight o'clock in the morning. He's like, oh, Sam, you know, how you going? And I'm like, oh, just can't find work. You know, I was at uni, but I was all at uni. And he's like, oh, there's a job going here at the club. He's like, you know, I reckon you'd be really good working here at the PCYC. Like, I reckon I could get you an interview with the manager. I was like, oh, yeah, I'd love that. Like, I'd be mad. And he's like, yeah, okay, well, can you come back here this afternoon? And in my head, I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> so I went back to the place in King's Cross where I was house sitting and I had this sort of, you know, bit of a dilemma where I was like Crossroads. Yeah, man. Massive, massive crossroad moment in my life. And I called my friend and I said, Bruh, I'm not gonna do it today, eh? And he's like, Oh, fuck it, don't worry, don't be a pussy, you'll be everything will be fine. And I was like, Look, man, I've got a bad feeling about it anyway. But luckily I had this. If I didn't have the interview, I reckon I would have gone. But I had, because I had the interview, it's like I had a tangible excuse. Like, I was like, look, no, nah, I can't do it now because I've got this job interview and this opportunity. So, like, sorry, bro, I'm Good out. Chance. And he's like, oh, fuck, all right, man, whatever. So, um, goes, and the as the story goes, they both, they guy that replaced me got caught, my best friend got caught, guy driving the car got caught. My best friend's life was a mess for years after that, you know, going through the criminal justice system and... And then I started a job at the PCYC working in community and that started my community development journey to where I am now, you know? Um, yeah, so crazy. Shit, crazy, bro. But Yeah, and I had a... It's crazy, man. I had a lot of guilt that I didn't did do it for my friend because my friend went through it and um, we're still best friends now, you know? But, like, we talked about it after a lot of years and it was like it was a big thing because you have this like when you've grown up with people in the struggle like and they're like your family and this this world becomes so normalized it's like it is it's like a brotherhood man like it totally is and um yeah it's like and i felt this i felt this massive guilt that like he had to go through that as well like part of me felt like why, why couldn't i convince him not to do it as well or Maybe I should have been there with him. It would have gone different. Yeah, and this, I'm guessing there's a kind of act, there's an element of like you dogged him, yeah, because you didn't yeah, go, yeah, hundred percent, yeah, totally, totally. Which, that 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 yeah, the, those feelings of loyalty are so like definitely. run so deep, definitely, bro, hundred percent. Frauds motivated you to keep to do what you were doing better and and what you're doing now and that sort of thing. Well, it just gives it gives me that insight. Like we talked at the start about the juvenile justice system. Know? and how easy it is for kids to get caught up in the cycle and man I could be any I could have been any one of those kids if it wasn't for chance in a lot of mm. ways and um, you just see so much of our young kids with so much potential so much character just get caught up in this cycle because they're growing up in communities and worlds where um, this stuff's normalized you know this is how we've learnt to survive we've got a lack of role models in our communities so we look to the only ones that we've got that are out there doing what they should be doing um you know all these sorts of things and that's why i'm really passionate about it because at the end of the day like we are all very much the same but we're very much you know impacted by the worlds that we've grown up with you know 
And that's why, yeah, that's why the work we're doing at Impact Policy is so critical because, you know, these are all our people that are in prison, that are dealing with mental health, that are, you know, disconnected from community, whatever it might be. Um, but there's, there's ways that as, as a community, as a society, that we can do things better so that as a whole we can all live better and live stronger, you know. I think, you know, after think, and that's why we do that stuff with Spark, with the jiu-jitsu stuff with the kids. So I was going to ask you next, yeah. Yeah. So you like, tell us about it. So like, you know, I, I mentioned about this basketball program that I sort of was a part of as a kid. And so whilst it wasn't like the thing that saved me, Man, like to be able to have an outlet as a kid, to be able to be able to go somewhere and to be able to access a sport and a community that I might not have been able to access, it was such a critical safety for me going through all that struggle. And um yeah, like bro, my basketball coach saved me from like getting suspended like three, four times. It was amazing. But like the reflecting back on it, like we played in rep tournaments, we went to national carnivals and all that sort of stuff. Most of our team was made up of kids living up, living in public housing in Glebe with, you know, single-income or no-income families on welfare. None of us paid a cent to play. I don't remember paying nothing to go to Ballarat to play a Nationals tournament when I was 13. And um, I reflect back on that. And I so now this stuff I'm doing now, so we've, we've this year we've invested thousands of dollars into making jiu-jitsu accessible for young people living in Redfern. Um, it started in Woolloomooloo, uh, started in Woolloomooloo pre-COVID, I think it was, um, and it's been at Redfern this year. And basically we've, we've invested funding through Impact Policy to make those um, services available for families and young people. Because we know that, like, you know, you look at so much... Uh, for me, growing up, watching a lot of young people in my communities, there was so, ma- so much talent and so much potential, but just um, no opportunity... Um, or access to those to those spaces and places. So, um, so yeah. So we invested you know th- thousands of dollars this year into doing that, um, and that's just something we're really passionate about. You know, jujitsu is a growing sport in Australia, and First Nations jujitsu is growing. Like there's so much Aboriginal people and young people, particularly, that are taking up the sport. Um, but martial arts is a bit of a um, it's not the most accessible sport financially as well. So we want to try and um, be a part of um, making it as accessible as we can for young people like me that would have grown up in families that you know, no way in the world would have been ever been able to learn jiu-jitsu as a kid. Um, and so we're really passionate about that. Um, we got back from a trip out to far west New South Wales. Um, there's an amazing program happening out there um, at the Mildura Jiu-Jitsu. Um, and it's a uh, shout-out to... Um, Luke Burnham, who runs the school. His son is Cooper Burnham, who's one of the head coaches down at uh, Alliance at Melbourne. Young guy, he's like 22. Have you heard of him? Alliance in Melbourne? Yeah, he's one of the head coaches there, Cooper Burnham. He's like a young kid, 22. No. And um, so he's he's like killing it down there. And um, his dad runs the program in Mildura. uh, And they've just launched this First Nations Jiu-Jitsu program out there. So he's also got this other um, Aboriginal brown belt that just trains at his school. She's a really massive, um, you know, jiu-jitsu advocate, but she's also a massive community advocate, does a whole range of amazing community work. Uh, so I guess she's she doesn't run it, but she's been involved in supporting him from a cultural perspective in terms of getting it going. But I tell you, bro, like I was up there a couple of months ago 
and he's got like an army of like teenage girls training jiu-jitsu <laughs> like four or five nights a week. Wow. Like smashing it out. And he's got like – we sponsored a scholarship for one of the students out there. So he's got them all on scholarships. So none of them are paying for their fees, for their geese, for whatever. He helps with transport to get them to and from training, um, all that sort of stuff. He's got one of the girls competed um, – got silver at nationals like they actually like doing some damage these kids these kids like Man. one of their students just came back from worlds got double bronze at worlds she's a 16 year old blue belt wow bakaji and tongan girl like animal monster her mummy's her mummy's the um the aboriginal woman that's a brown belt there Chantel thompson okay yeah she she won um i think she medaled at worlds as well and she wrestled in the commonwealth games Holy shit. Yeah, so she's she's a G, man. She's not to be messed with. Um, and she's just as strong off the mats as on the mats. But, um, yeah, shout out to them. They're doing, they're doing amazing stuff in Mildura. Um, and that's sort of – I came back from that really, uh, I guess, motivated and, and excited about like, okay, I think there's something brewing here in terms of how we can really try and support and invest into um, not just First Nations Jiu-Jitsu, but how do, we, how do we make this sport as accessible as possible for young people you know, I, I come from a background where working in the justice system, like, so I grew up, so when I was, when I was living in foster care, I started boxing because I got, I got bashed. I, I was going to say the boxing model, like that yeah, one's been around for a while. Massively. There's probably a lot of lessons in there, eh? Yeah, definitely. But like in the, in the system, like people are really, there's like a stigma around teaching people to fight or martial arts. Because like I'd be in the you're gonna weaponize them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'd be in the prison system. I'd be like, they'd be like running this. They call it a boot camp in the mornings, and they take these kids out and they do push ups and you know some calisthenic stuff. And I'd be like, fuck, you want me to put some kids through the pads? Like you know they all love it. Oh no, no, no way. We, we can't teach kids how to punch. Like they'll go out and fight. I'm like, half these kids are here for fighting. Like, <laughs> like. They, like let's engage them in something they like maybe through that we can do some mentoring through that we can do you know strengthen those relationships and engagement and then we can do some deep work they're fighting regardless <laughs> like um you know and so it's kind of like don't give them sex education and they won't have sex yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and um so it was often really hard to talk about like trying to do that sort of stuff and same thing with jujitsu. like we tried to apply for some funding from uh local council grant you know, we were successful and me and my friend that applied for it, we just feel like it's like it's, it's that stigma around people not sort of getting. There's an education piece at the moment in terms of how valuable martial arts, boxing, all that sort of stuff is from a therapeutic perspective. And there's so much evidence already that exists about the impact of it. Um, but there's maybe it's a comms and marketing piece. I don't know. But there's something that needs to change in terms of a, a values piece in terms of what it can add and bring you know i think about like from a from a um you often hear about like bullying right like bullying has been an age-old problem you know it's a bullying epidemic and there's you know anti-bullying programs and all this sort of stuff and for me i'm like man bullying is is the issue 100 percent. like i experienced bullying when i was in primary school like i think you know a lot of people have experienced that at some stage but i also think like bullying is like a part of human nature too like i don't think you can ever stop i don't think you can ever stop it like there's gonna be there's bullies at work there's bullies in the gym there's bullies at school they're like it's a 
it's a behavior, right? I was just thinking about this this week because my older kid and my the younger one, the two boys, yeah. and like my older kid, he's sweet boy, he's the best, yeah. but he bullies him and he he doesn't like bullies. He knows all the all of that, but he he bullies his younger brother. And I changed my mindset around it. And same thing, I'm like, I don't think I could scold him for bullying him. I like obviously there's parameters and you can't step over a certain line, but it's kind of part of how they interact with each other. He stands over him, he's physical, but yeah. it's, it is part of I, 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 I human behaviour. I hear what you say, man. Like, I got three young kids, my middle daughter, Kalani, like, she's a bit of a bully, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I see it. The same thing with her younger sister. Like, and she has that style about, but some people would say like, oh, but that's a leadership thing or that's a, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a, like a, um, I'm like, oh, I don't know. But, <laughs> So I guess what I'm trying to say though is like what I'm trying to say is that I feel like there's a real conversation piece when we look at bullying from talking about resilience mm. as opposed to we really look at it from like the bully and you're the problem and anti-bullies, and zero mm. tolerance, bully, mm. bully, bully as opposed to like actually let's look at Joey and right. like what could we do with you Joey because that shouldn't be happening to you. That's not okay and let's give you some skills so you know that that's not okay mm. but let's also recognize that that whether it's this guy or somewhere else like this could happen again so how can we give you the skills and the resilience to be able to navigate that if that ever happens to you again so which in turn makes you less of a target for bullying doesn't it 100 percent. and bullies dissipate as soon as someone shows resistance type of thing totally but yeah i'm totally. always trying to work with the young kid just as much as i am with the older one definitely because it's yeah they're just yeah interesting it's it's critical man and, and that's that's what that's that's where i fall into the jiu-jitsu space because i'm like for me i see that as the that is like you know you see like gracie's got their bullyproof system and all that sort of stuff and you know like i don't think it's perfect but i see it as like like it's a it's a hundred percent a a tool that we we should be talking about we should be promoting like man if why, why why should we not be teaching kids to be able to keep themselves safe if they're getting bullied at school? Why should we be telling that bully, don't hit that person, but he's still going to go, well, fuck, I hate that person. I'm going to hit him next week. But we haven't talked to that kid about, like, we'll cover Clash Clinch if he comes at you, bro, because <laughs> yeah, he might knock your teeth out, you know? Like, And um, so that's, what, that's, that's a lot of things I sort of come into, you know? And, and then when you look at it from that broader, you know, whether you call it systemic or, um, or whatever it might be, like, our young people are more often than not victims of crime just as much as we are even though we're um you know overrepresented in custody we're also overrepresented overrepresented as victims of crime you know and we know that you know a lot of this sort of stuff with um with uh early early signs of um disengagement and getting caught up in the criminal justice system starts at school starts at school with you know truanting and disengagement and all that sort of stuff and bullying is often a big part of that in different you know pieces of those puzzles and so for me i'm like you know you know in particular and from a from a from a gendered perspective too or from even just a size-based perspective too it's like man what what better what better resilience piece of skill to be able to give a young person to be able to then be able to teach them how to keep themselves safe and to empower them that you know you can't you can't put your hands on me again bro because i'm going to take you down and by the time i take you down the fight will get broken up so don't fuck do it again. <laughs> like I don't know. That's that's so that's why I'm so passionate about jiu-jitsu because I can see, I can see the impact of it working in the juvenile justice space, 
growing up in a, in a community where there's lots of crime, lots of violence. Like I said, I got, I got asked to leave in the first three weeks for fighting when I was in high school. Been suspended plenty of times for fighting. Seen so many schoolyard fights. Um, seen them broken up. Seen them really bad. Yeah, and in the prison system and all that sort of stuff. And you just think like, like how, how what, yeah, what better skill could you be able to do to give someone? So for me as well, that's a big part of the spark program is is being able to make it accessible particularly for those communities that are more susceptible to being at risk of victimization being at risk of you know disadvantage and all that sort of stuff that puts you in those spaces and places where you can fall into those cycles um yeah and so just on that does uh, impact policy fund spark impact yeah okay yeah, yeah. Amazing, and so that's you do, that's a portion of your profits or revenue yeah. that goes towards that. Yeah, so we reinvest a portion of our profits into funding it. Um, we're trying to look at you know more sustainable stuff long term in terms of how can we not even just more sustainable, but more like how can we look at this as a bigger piece. We don't want it to just be like we funded a program here, we funded a program there. You want it to be like ongoing, self-sustaining kind yeah. of... Yeah, and we feel like it's a bigger conversation. Like we've just talked about some really big social like problems for young people at the moment and, and different things like that. These aren't issues that are specific to just one community. They're quite specific to a lot of different places. So I think Spark Impact's got the potential to evolve into other things outside of just you know funding specific programs but also looking at you know how can we actually drive some some changes with how we look at this sort of stuff so we've got some awesome um we've got an awesome team at the moment we've got some staff that are doing like a research piece at the moment into um, martial arts and trauma and well-being um so they're doing that right now so we're just trying to build this evidence base so then we can start to think about like okay where are we going with this we've got a research student with us from macquarie uni um, he's backing us up with that. So he's going to interview some of those young people out in Mildura, some of those Aboriginal young girls in that program. Do a real deep dive in with them around like how long they've been in the program, what's the impact's been like, you know, all that sort of stuff. Really trying to capture the stories, the narratives, the research and evidence um, so that we can really start to drive a conversation about like looking at this stuff from a, you know, a real sort of values add perspective for our communities. That's so cool. Yeah, it's exciting, man. It's exciting. It's awesome work, dude. Not bad for a white belt, bro. <laughs> Not bad, <laughs> <laughs> bro. I um, yeah, we I appreciate you coming on, and and you know we could keep going, and I'd love to catch up again at some point in the near future, and mm, always maybe get an update. I'm sure you guys have got big plans. Like, it's a fucking big job. Yeah, definitely. I'll um, I'll send you through a link to some of the um ways people can get involved or find out more information yeah do you have where can you direct them we'll obviously put all that in the show notes but where can people check out your podcast and yeah look for if anyone wants to know more about impact policy um all the work that i'm doing i'm, I'm really active on linkedin um so for anyone that's listening that's active on that platform you can just find me and, and connect with me there uh you'll find a lot of the sort of stuff we're doing from a community and policy perspective in that sort of space we're not massive on the other social platforms We've got accounts and that in that sort of space. Um, but we're also on YouTube if you want to check out the podcast and Spotify. Um, that's out at the moment. We're at, it's, it's, it's our first season, so we're on episode four at the moment, I think, is out. But got some good feedback from there. So it's a nice show, man. Nicely produced. <laughs> like, looks real nice. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, beautiful. I've been told I've got a face for radio, so I've been happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mad. Sammy, thanks, bro. Nah, too easy, bro. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. Pleasure. Appreciate yeah. It.
Thanks, boys. Guys, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Um, please check out the show notes for any of the links to the stuff that, that Sam spoke about. And if you can think of anywhere where you could connect uh, any of his organizations, Spark Impact or Impact Policy, reach out, get in touch. Um, please share the episode with someone you know who would enjoy it. Helps to support the show uh, and helps just it helps us keep having awesome conversations with people like Sam. Thank you. We'll catch you guys next week. See you. Thank you.